The U.S. has done, a, I think, a very fine job over the past 70 years trying to spread peace and prosperity and stability across vast swaths of the world. It is the week of October 26th, and welcome to episode 48 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. I'm Lester Munson, NSI Senior Fellow. Today, we'll be doing a deep dive with Atul Keshe, Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for the Bureau of East Asian and Pacific Affairs. Ambassador Keshe is a senior career foreign service officer, and across his 25-year career as an American diplomat, he has served postings in India, Morocco, and Guinea. He has been U.S. Ambassador to Sri Lanka and Maldives. Prior to his current assignment, Ambassador Keshe served as the Department of Defense served at the Department of Defense as the National Defense University's Vice Chancellor for the College of International Security Affairs. Ambassador Keshep, let's start at a really high level. There's a lot going on in East Asia and the Pacific. Um, Can you talk about the biggest trends in the region, the things that we should be paying attention to long term? Well, I think the the biggest sort of trend right now is, of course, the coronavirus and how we all uh, get back on our feet and get our economies working again, get people moving. This is obviously the most... uh, pressing concern, I think, on the minds of every government in the region. Uh, Longer term, I think, when when you look at what um, Assistant Secretary Stilwell has been talking about, uh, he's talking about the need to ensure the sovereignty and freedom of choice of countries in the region. He gave a great speech about uh, the need uh, for countries to be able to retain that sovereignty and latitude of choice. Uh, You know, when we look out across uh, the Pacific Islands, we look out across Southeast Asia, Uh, we look out across the entire Indo-Pacific region, we realize that countries that have choices uh, are able to make good choices. Uh, Citizens that are informed and and have the ability to feed into their country's decisions, uh, uh, ideally in a democratic uh, process, are able to help steer and guide those choices. We want countries to be strong. America is all about helping build strong, robust Uh, viable societies around the world. We've been in that business for a long time. If you look at the prosperity of, uh, you know, huge chunks of the world, Europe, East Asia, etc., since World War II, it's been because the American system works. And it's a system that's not just American. It's been contributed to by countries all around the world. It's a rules-based international order. Uh, We have peaceful resolution of disputes. There's all kinds of mechanisms to ensure that countries can uh, play, that, that countries that play fair can benefit uh, from this rules-based international order, and we, you know, we worry candidly that the Chinese and others might be uh, engaging in activities that would erode that system. And it wouldn't necessarily be for everybody's benefit. It would only be for China's benefit. So we're very vigilant. We're very concerned about that. I think we, as Americans, want to be good friends and uh, be helpful. Uh, and we're going to continue to do that. I think there's a lot of uh, uh, emphasis and activity by the United States in its bilateral relations all across the Indo-Pacific region. Secretary of State's in New Delhi right now, and he's heading to Sri Lanka and Maldives and Indonesia and other points uh, because of the importance that we place on this vitally important region. So, Atul, we're not we're not naive on this podcast. We've we've had your colleagues at, at the State Department. Assistant Secretaries Kirsten Madison on, Assistant Secretary Chris Ford on. We've talked uh, about China with them. We've gone pretty deep into their the aspects of that bilateral relationship that they handle from a nonproliferation perspective or a international law perspective. 
from from the regional bureau, you you're looking pretty intensely at China, obviously, and and of course there is a ton of concern right now. Let's start let's start positive though. What positive aspects can you identify in the U.S.-China relationship, be it economic, military, diplomatic, ideological, or otherwise? Is there any is there good news we could be talking about? Well, Wes, I think you should start off probably with uh, the prosperity of the American people. You know, presidents worked very hard to secure a phase one trade deal. Uh, we'll have to see how the implementation goes on that. But that could lead to a lot of uh, increased exports for American uh, producers, American farmers. Uh, you know, we've got to take care of our own people. We've got to make sure that they can have good and viable jobs and that we can keep, uh, you know, continuing to being a very prosperous country at home. So I think the phase one trade deal is probably the, the, the first thing that comes to mind. The other thing is, you know, we're concerned about what happens with North Korea and with potential nuclear uh, proliferation. We're very worried about the trend lines, um, you know, on Iran, of course. And we, we, I don't know that we can necessarily, you know, work clearly on that, but we'll have to try. And then, of course, there's things like drug trafficking, where I think the, the Chinese have to, you know, uh, be vigilant about fentanyl that's coming into the United States. Fentanyl is an extremely dangerous and potent drug. Uh, we want to try to uh, uh, limit and control that to the greatest extent possible. So there are areas where we might be able to, you know, find reasonable uh, opportunities to work together. So uh, President Trump has been, uh, I would say, fairly aggressive in pushing back against China. Of course, we had in the U.S. kind of a bipartisan understanding that we would engage positively with Beijing uh, since uh, really the, the Nixon administration, certainly in the Carter administration and beyond, we had a fairly robust bilateral cooperative relationship with Beijing. That has very much changed under President Trump because of some of the challenges we're facing from the Xi government in Beijing. Can you can you talk about the steps that the State Department is taking now as part of that pushback against a more aggressive China? So I think we've got to be clear about what we're looking at. Um, Matt Pottinger gave a speech where he talked about a Confucian concept called the rectification of names. And this concept essentially says that you should call things what they are and you ought to see things for what they are. And so, as you rightly said, Les, there's been uh, decades of bipartisan consensus that we needed to engage China and that through that engagement, uh, commercial, economic, um, political, strategic, diplomatic, that China would become a responsible stakeholder and would help uphold the global order and would help reinforce and strengthen the, uh, the rules-based international system. I will tell you that, you know, I used to go to China uh, in a period of time where you could have honest discussions, you could sit around a table and have a dinner with somebody, with scholars, with uh, officials, with, um, you know, ordinary people, uh, and hear their views. Uh, I remember uh, going to China at a time when uh, you could have, uh, you could see fairly robust discussions uh, on social media. Of Chinese people talking to themselves about uh, problems within China that needed to be fixed, corruption, transparency, rule of law. Uh, I remember when you could sit in a coffee shop in a hotel in Beijing and talk to journalists and have a very open conversation about U.S.-China relations, about trends within China. And a lot of that, if not all of that, has changed. It has changed dramatically in the past uh, six to eight years. And what we're seeing is a China that is far more closed off at home. Uh, it is far more dangerous to speak out freely uh, and openly within China. 
uh, people have suffered consequences. You've seen the rise of these, uh, you know, terrible uh, concentration camps in Xinjiang. And you've seen a real aggressiveness by China around the world um, in, in all kinds of different areas, whether it's in the multilateral system that helps govern the, the rules by which countries uh, engage with each other, or it's in bilateral relations with countries around the world, or it's in relations with the United States. I don't think American values or American policies have changed. I think we always intend to be a friend to everybody in the world. We uh, like to, uh, you know, see reciprocity in relations. We like to see countries treat us the way we would like to be treated. And I think when we see that we're being treated in, in ways that are, that are disadvantageous, uh, that are not based on reciprocity, we're going to stand up for ourselves. Um, you know, we're all worried about what happened in Hong Kong. We're worried about what's happening, uh, you know, on the India-China border. We see these things. Uh, I think these, uh, you know, whatever's happening in the State Department, to answer your question, is a reflection of what has already happened in China. And it is a reaction to what has happened in China. We have to deal with the world as it is. We have to deal with relationships as they are. And so in the State Department, as part of a whole-of-government effort, uh, we are working to ensure that there is reciprocity, uh, that um, we can have balanced relations, that we are always open to dialogue. We are always willing to talk to the Chinese at any place, at any time, as long as it's a meaningful discussion. Uh, you know, the recitation of talking points is not going to be very helpful. You know, we're ready to talk. We're ready to have a uh, find productive ways to collaborate with each other, if that's possible. But this also requires uh, the Chinese system to be uh, willing to do that. And I will tell you that in my personal experience, since I was APEC envoy uh, eight, ten years ago, uh, compared to today, it is a lot harder to have a kind of direct conversation, a useful conversation with uh, with Chinese counterparts. There's a, a tool. There's. I'd love to get your your view on this. There's there's a notion out there that goes back to the Peloponnesian War, Athens versus Sparta. The idea is that the established power in the world is always going to run into conflict with the rising power in the world. And so the the model back then was uh, Sparta uh, as the rising power ran into Athens as the established power. They had this terrible war for many, many years. Lots of people thought it was awful. Uh, but that, that situation is somehow applicable now. U.S. is the, the United States is the established power. China is the rising power. We have different approaches to government. We are inevitably going to come into conflict. Do you buy into that model or do you see the possibility that down the road we could end up in a more cooperative, collaborative relationship with Beijing? Well, I think, Les, you've got to accept that uh, in any one of these scenarios, the Chinese people and Chinese leadership also have a vote. And so it's not just the United States that is going to determine uh, the future outcome of U.S. relations with China. Uh, we have to see what the other party does. Now, I would personally say that if you look at the track record of the United States and you look at how we worked with Japan and Germany uh, and with other uh, powers with whom we fought wars to help them get back on their feet and to become prosperous nations again and to contribute to the well-being of the entire world, uh, this, again, uh, it required them to take a positive step toward us, and we also took very strong steps toward them. The U.S. has done, a, I think, a very fine job over the past 70 years trying to spread peace and prosperity and stability across vast swaths of the world. You look at our relative GDP compared to uh, what it was in 1945, that is proof that the American people have spread prosperity everywhere, that we don't believe 
in a beggar thy neighbor kind of foreign policy. We believe in every country being strong and prosperous and independent and sovereign. And we think that in turn, they'll become good partners and can, can, can help us lift the burden of global governance and global security. You know, we have an unbeatable uh, network of alliance partners and friends uh, because they believe in what we're trying to achieve uh, in the world. And they believe in our values. They believe in the good outcomes that the American people have contributed to. I'll give you one small example. In the last 15, 20 years, the American people have given $120 billion in assistance to the world to alleviate global health challenges, whether it's Ebola or it's malaria or it's polio or uh, AIDS, HIV. The generosity of the American people is unbelievable. And the, I would argue that our, our, our system of approaching the world is one where not only do we win, but we want everybody to win. We want everybody to benefit equally. So, uh, Les, when you look at these things like the Thucydides trap, I think you've got to recognize that the other guy gets a vote and the other guy gets to determine how things go. Personally speaking, as an American diplomat, I will tell you that I will work and thousands of us will work every day to advance American values, the values of the American people, the American government, their elected representatives, their good values. They've been good for an enormous chunk of the world. And if we keep it up, I think we will see even more prosperity and even more global happiness and security, uh, especially in countries where they're still aspiring to achieve the levels of prosperity that we have helped foster uh, in many, many countries. Uh, great, great answer. Um, Let's let's talk about China's impact on its neighbors. You talked uh, about the U.S. not being in a beggar thy neighbor type approach to the world. What's the Chinese approach, particularly to uh, countries that surround it in the Asia Pacific? How how are those countries reacting to the growth of China and China's more assertive uh, posture in their region? I'd like to tell a story, if that's okay, if you'll indulge me for a I minute. Will, I will allow that. I will allow that at all. So when I was a kid, um, my dad worked for the UN. My mom had worked for the State Department. I was born in Africa, and I spent some very formative years in Africa uh, as a kid. And uh, I will never forget, as an American kid living in Zambia in the 1970s, when uh, the Zambian government had a trade fair. And all these countries sent their delegations and their exhibits. And so one day my dad said, well, you know, it's Central Africa in 1978 or 79. Let's go take a look at the trade fair. We didn't even have TV back then. So off we went. And, you know, there was the like the Chinese exhibit and it was very sort of Mao era Chinese. And there was the Soviet Union exhibit and it was very sort of dour and drab, uh, as you would expect Brezhnev Soviet Union to be. And then there was the American Pavilion, and it was, honest to God, blow your socks off, amazing. It was a like a, a Buckminster Fuller half dome. The American delegation put it up uh, on, you know, empty space where there had been nothing. They brought in all these models of Skylab and Saturn V, pictures of American astronauts standing on the moon. They had all these things that you could touch and look at, models of various space-going vehicles like the um, lunar rover. It was just unbelievable. And this was in an era when the United States government was building roads, it was building dams, it was building electrical grids, it was building water and sewer systems all around Africa. Uh, it was as if, you know, to a seven-year-old kid in Africa, it was like uh, feeling that you were part of 
a country of supermen and superwomen. It was unbelievable. And the challenge for us, I think, Wes, uh, to go to your question, is that we have to continue to be that in some ways. That doesn't mean we have to give away money. We don't have to do things for other people. We don't have to, you know, care more about them than we care about our own people and our own heartland and our own jobs. But we do have to be relevant. And I would argue that what the Chinese are trying to do right now is they're being very pragmatic. And they're, frankly, stealing a page out of our own book from the 1950s and 60s and 70s when the United States did unbelievable things all around the world. Um, and so what we've got to do is introspect a little bit about why, you know, countries in Africa or in, uh, in uh, the Indo-Pacific are looking at these Chinese proposals and taking them on. Uh, I would say that part of it is that the Chinese build quickly, no doubt. It may not be very well. Uh, it may not be very durable. Uh, and it may not be very transparent. And it may not have a viable business model. Uh, and it may end up in long-term uh, debt that is unsustainable, but boy, does it get built quickly. And it looks visibly quite relevant in the lives of the people of these countries. I've seen it with my own eyes, ports, uh, expressways, uh, you know, big TV communications towers, harbors, uh, airports, you name it. Uh, the challenge for the United States, I think, is to remind people that they do have a choice, and they can go with the quick and easy, which could have long-term pernicious impact, or they can go with the far more transparent, far more ethical, far more high-quality, far more uh, enduring uh, propositions of the World Bank, uh, the Asian Development Bank, uh, you know, our allies in Japan and Australia and India and other countries, and of course the United States as, as well. I think we're trying to get far more relevant in terms of our overseas activities. Uh, Congress passed the BUILD Act, which is, I think, a big boom, uh, boon for the American diplomats around the world in uh, bringing real value to countries and saying, hey, you know, the other guy can build that road, but have you looked at the durability? Have you looked at the price per mile? Have you looked at, you know, um, why it's so expensive, why it's three times more expensive than what the World Bank suggests a comparable road ought to be? Have you looked at what the long-term debt posture is? What is the interest rate? What are the repayment terms? Have you looked at who can sustain that road? Are you going to learn from the Chinese that, in fact, you can sustain it, you can maintain it, you can keep that road? Or are they just going to do it for you and keep on coming back and uh, basically robbing your own people of their own labor and wages and well-being? This is where the United States has to be relevant. And I, I would hope that we could uh, leverage our colossal strengths and uh, know-how uh, to be as relevant to these countries as, we, as they certainly uh, looked to me back in uh, 1970s Zambia. <clears throat> that was a great uh, description of Zambia, by the way. I really felt like I was in Lusaka. Well done. Um, uh, you, of course, just a few years ago, were the U.S. ambassador to Sri Lanka and Maldives. Uh, can you talk about what you saw there, in, particularly in Sri Lanka, in terms of the way China behaved how the Sri Lankan government reacted and what and what the U.S. did or could do to counter what's happening? Les, it's a great question. Um, and I would be uh, I would be happy to talk about that in general terms. There's a uh, longstanding tradition that former ambassadors should uh, avoid commentary on their on their former assignments uh, while they're still in the saddle. So I will refrain particularly on Sri Lanka. But what I would say is. 
What we're seeing there, we're seeing in many countries. We're seeing it in Pakistan. We're seeing it in Djibouti. We're seeing it in countries in, um, in Southeast Asia, in the Pacific Islands. And it goes back to my previous answer, which is that if projects are transparent, if they are viable, if the people of those countries get to opine, ideally in an open and, and, and democratic process, if they can look at the terms of the projects, if there are high standards uh, in terms of ethics and reliability, durability, then by all means, countries should make the best choices they can. The point the United States is making over and over again is that we want countries to have a choice. We want them to have good choices and let them make their own best decisions about what's best for them. What worries me candidly is that in a lot of countries, these proposals are not transparent. The terms are not publicly debated. Uh, the uh, labor is not being done by local people such that they can acquire the skills and the talent. Um, and, um, you know, it may not actually lead to the long-term prosperity and well-being of a lot of these countries because the debt terms are often pernicious. Uh, there may be some non-transparent elements to the debt by which some uh, are very happy and many are left very unhappy. At the end of the day, the taxpayer uh, uh, is the person who has to pay for the long-term obligations that are undertaken. And if you take on a 30-year debt at bad terms, uh, far more unfavorable than you could with the Asian Development Bank or the World Bank, uh, and then the road doesn't work five years later, or you know the, the the port is not financially viable, then you really haven't done your country or your people a service. And this is where the United States, working with its partners and allies, has to show that there are viable alternatives, and there ought to be you know a complete debate within um, countries about exactly what is being offered and whether it's good and whether it's bad. If that happens, then I think we're perfectly happy to compete. What we don't like is sort of um, deals that are made outside of public eye uh, that could have long-term deleterious impact on people around the world. Uh, let me just offer you a, a vision from Sri Lanka, if you will. I won't talk policy. Um, if you go to the, uh, uh, the very tip of Sri Lanka and you stand on the ramparts of the old uh, Portuguese and then Dutch fort in Gaul, which is this beautiful little... Uh, uh, fishing village and uh, ancient harbor at the very southern tip of Sri Lanka. You can look out from those ramparts, which are about maybe 75 feet above the water, and look out about five, six, seven miles and see the busiest shipping lane in the entire Indian Ocean. You can see tankers and bulk cargo carriers, car carriers uh, going in one direction from Malacca toward. Uh, the Straits of Hormuz or the Bab el-Mandab, and in the other direction going back toward the Straits of Malacca. You know, when you have that perfect geographic positioning, uh, when you have so much traffic at your doorstep, uh, you can achieve great things. And so a colleague of mine, Dean Thompson, said the other day that, uh, you know, we want countries like Sri Lanka to make good choices, and we want to make sure that those choices are available to them. And I think that's the main thrust of American policy, not just in Sri Lanka, but in Africa, in the Middle East, in Southeast Asia, out in the Pacific Islands. Uh, we don't want them to feel like uh, their politicians and leaders can only make one choice uh, and that may not be the best for their people. So you mentioned uh, that your boss, uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, is in India as, as we're recording this podcast. Uh, what how much should we be expecting India to play a counterweight to China in the region? Of course, our U.S. relationship with India has been gaining strength over the past few years. 
But are we are we ready to rely on India to be that counterweight to China in the region? Hmm. Great question. Um, I was born in the year when India signed a treaty of peace and friendship with the Soviet Union. And I remember going to India as an American kid uh, coming in from Africa or Europe or Newport News, Virginia, which is my grandmother's hometown, wherever we were coming in from, you'd come into India that, you know, was uh, a, a different world. Uh, the culture shock for me was extreme uh, coming from wherever I was coming from. My dad was visiting to see his mom, who was uh, well into her probably 70s or 80s by then. And we'd go to this, you know, small little village outside of Delhi and spend a little bit of time. Uh, the food was different. Um, we were sort of disconnected from the world. It took, I think it was like three and a half dollars a minute to make an international phone call. And that was if you could get the line. India has transformed so much less. In my lifetime, India has has, you know, not only got a, a world-class economy in many ways, there's so much more prosperity in India now. Um, there, you know, uh, you can't believe it when I tell you that there was three flights a week between Delhi and Bangalore back in the day. And uh, you'd be lucky to get a seat because there was so much demand and so much scarcity. And now everything's changed. Uh, you know, there's been all these revolutions in India, revolutions of access to information uh, through satellite TV and the Internet, access to communications through the cheapest telephone calling in the world, uh, access to the world through the ability of Indians with money in their pockets to travel and see the entire world. And one of the greatest things that's happened in my lifetime is to see the United States and India get closer and closer together. These are two of the largest democracies on the planet. Um, we have, uh, you know, increasing people-to-people -people ties. I think I'm uh, in a way kind of representative of that, that there is DNA shared in common between our countries. Um, and uh, so working on this has been very important for me. I started working on the U.S.-India relationship back in probably about 2000 or 2001, 2002. And I got to India for my first uh, assignment there in 2005, uh, right as President Bush and Prime Minister Singh announced the U.S.-India uh, nuclear deal. I spent three years on that in terms of working to finalize it and help uh, market it, both in the American system and in the Indian system. And since then, I feel like we've just been off to the races. There has been such a commonality of uh, shared strategic perspective. We have signed foundational military agreements. Our trade relationship is booming, although there's always room for complaints on both sides, but it's nothing like what it was in 1975 or 1980. Uh, you look at the, um, the way that we look at the world, both the Indian Ocean region, the South China Sea, uh, you know, the shared strategic perspectives are just getting better and better. We have this uh, fantastic ministerial level quad dialogue. One just happened in Tokyo a few days ago where we had all of the four foreign ministers of the quad come together. Um, I have been privileged to work on the, uh, the very first uh, uh, beginnings of the U.S.-India-East Asia dialogue which led to the trilat with Japan, which in turn led to the quad, uh, even as we've seen uh, so many other elements of our cooperation increase. We've seen increasing military sales of C-17s, Apaches, C-130s, and much else besides. We're seeing a much greater comfort level in terms of the uh, comparison of notes between the American system and the Indian system. And I remember a time when to get from America to India, you had to transfer in Heathrow or Frankfurt. And nowadays there are so many nonstop flights. I found out the other day there's now a nonstop flight on United between San Francisco and Bangalore. 
which would have been unthinkable back in 1975. So as an Indian American, I'll tell you, I feel like both Democrats and Republicans, bipartisan uh, approach over many, many years by Americans uh, and also by Indians, bipartisan approach has led to a really great outcome at this current moment. Now, on uh, the future, who can say what the future brings? But I will say that one thing I'm very proud of is that everything we've done between the U.S. and India has been fully debated between uh, free people in both countries. And uh, there is a democratic and, and very well-sounded consensus on the need for the United States and India to go forward together. Uh, we have shared values. We have shared commonality of approach. Uh, whatever happens between India and its role in the world is up to the Indian people. Uh, they have their own democratic processes. They make their own decisions in life. What I think they're realizing more and more is that the United States is a trusted and stalwart partner, that we bring good values and good energy to the equation, that we mean well for the Indian people. We want uh, nothing but their prosperity and their happiness and their security because we think that that's good for us. And we think it's good for the American people. It's good for our exporters. It's good for our farmers. It's good for our markets. It's good for our companies. And ultimately, it's good for the world to have the two greatest democracies on earth uh, working well together. Let me ask you about uh, uh, two other places in your region, two other countries in your region before uh, we let you go. Uh, first is Japan. Of course, the Shinzo Abe era is over. Japan has a new prime minister. How do you see the bi bilateral relationship between the U.S. and Japan progressing from this point? Les, Japan uh, is the cornerstone of our entire approach to the Indo-Pacific. Uh, it is uh, a treaty ally of long standing. Uh, I think we have something like 55,000 American troops in Japan. Uh, it is of profound strategic importance. Uh, and I think uh, Japan is critical to the peace and well-being and security uh, of the entire Indo-Pacific region. They have great relations with India, with Australia, uh, and, and so we will continue to work very closely with Japan. Uh, Japan has done more for, you know, helping uh, unleash the prosperity of regions around the world than almost any other country besides the United States. When you look at their enormous contributions to the United Nations uh, and to, uh, you know, the well-being of the world, uh, the Japanese are never, never shy about pulling out their wallet and helping lead. Uh, in ways that, frankly, the Chinese do not. You know, you will never find the Chinese in the leaderboard on any of these contributions to take care of refugees or to take care of uh, terrible, uh, you know, pandemics. Uh, they are not ones to play within the system and to, and to be as constructive and helpful as the Japanese. And so not, not only is Japan a democracy of long standing, not only do we have incredibly close cultural and people to people ties, not only are they a really great and reliable ally of long standing, but they're frankly, they bring good values. You know, you look at what uh, JBIC and JICA do around the world. You look at the development finance. You look at the efforts of the Japanese. Uh, they are very much in tandem with the United States and other like-minded partners. So we're going to keep on, uh, you know, having a, a really strong relationship with Japan. Uh, you know, we've been through leadership transitions. It's what happens in democracies. Uh, I think what's important is that the people-to-people -people relationship, government-to-government -government relationship is superb, uh, incredibly impactful and profound nation for us. And uh, we will keep on devoting uh, absolutely full measure of attention and resources to making sure that the U.S. and Japan and also other quad partners, India, Australia, and other like-mindeds, uh, keep on uh, batting for the right values uh, around the world.
I also want to ask you about uh, Thailand, where uh, in, the, in recent days there have been fairly large protests against the king, King Bajira Longhorn. Uh, he's a relatively new king. He's been there since 2016. His dad ruled for 70 years. Uh, the king has traditionally been a, a source of great stability in Thailand, so these protests seem to be of concern. How are how how is the U.S. how is the State Department balancing our concerns? For democracy in Thailand with a desire for stability there right now. So Les, countries around the world are all facing challenges right now. If you look at the uh, economic impact of coronavirus, you know, the Chinese uh, closed their own doors uh, and uh, did their utmost to control the virus within China. But it was not before there were weeks of delay and millions of people left China and traveled all around the world for uh, holidays and the virus spread globally. So, you know, China seems to be trying its best to get on its feet economically, although you can't always trust their economic statistics. Uh, but countries all around the world have suffered economically because of coronavirus. And Lord knows we've had thousands and thousands of deaths uh, in the United States and other places. And that's a reality that every country is facing. And Thailand is no exception. Thailand has one of the uh, uh, most tourism-dependent uh, economies on Earth. Uh, they have a very large economy. It's, I think, a half-trillion-dollar economy. They're one of the most prosperous countries in uh, Southeast Asia. They have one of the strongest currencies in the world, in the Thai baht. And, you know, they've got... Um, but they do have the real consequences of coronavirus, and they've got the real consequences of uh, a tourism economy that has essentially been shut for eight months, nine months. And, you know, there's been uh, protests all around the world. There have been social tensions all around the world. Uh, this is very much in keeping with what happens when you have a, a terrible, crippling pandemic that happens uh, to all of us. And so every nation has to deal with it in its own way. Uh, Thailand has an elected parliament. It's got a prime minister. Uh, of course, it's got the institution of the monarchy, which is revered by the Thai people. Uh, it's got, uh, you know, the clergy and other elements of Thai society and the Thai people themselves. And this is a matter that the Thai people need to have a dialogue amongst themselves uh, to talk about about the way forward. You know, the protesters obviously have their views. They've brought them out in public in great numbers. Uh, we respect uh, the rights of people all around the world to, um, uh, to uh, offer their opinions peacefully and freely uh, and to militate within their societies peacefully and freely for reform and improvement. So this is a dialogue for the Thai people. Uh, they have the institutions in which they can have those dialogues. And uh, we wish them uh, the very best because Thailand is a a treaty ally of long standing. Uh, we have relations going back two centuries, very, very warm relations with Thailand. It was a critical partner at, at very dark days in our history, including during the Vietnam War. And I think that we just want uh, nothing but the best for the people of Thailand and the government of Thailand and for the monarchy in Thailand. Atul, uh, thank you for uh, being with us today. This has been a terrific kind of tour around the region from 100,000 feet and down down into the weeds on some issues. Uh, I just want to say as a voter and a taxpayer, I am thrilled that you're on duty there at the State Department, helping us uh, handle all of these very difficult issues. Uh, this, this was really great. Thanks for spending some time with us. Les, it was a pleasure. I uh, remember very vividly getting onto a tiny little plane on the ramp uh, at Casablanca, and seeing, I was wondering to myself, because I, I was a junior officer and I had a lot of hair on my head. I was probably at least 60 pounds thinner than I am now. 
and I was a young fella just starting out my career. And Les, you've still got hair on your head, and you were just as tall back then. And I'm thinking to myself, that is a really tiny little airplane. How is that guy (laughs) going to fit in that airplane? And we flew on this excruciatingly long flight down the coast all the way to Lyon, and you were great. Uh, This was one of my first uh, uh, opportunities as a junior officer uh, to talk freely and frankly with somebody from uh, the Congress and from the Hill, uh, and to hear it, you know, very clearly from the perspective of the American people, as opposed to the wooden language of us dull, drab, gray bureaucrats. <laughs> and I'll never forget that trip to the southern provinces of Morocco. That was a great time, an absolutely smashing time. And I'll, I'll, it, it gives me lots of warm feelings even up to today. Uh, you and me both. And I think we were uh, very close to solving uh, that difficult diplomatic and political dilemma that they have going down there. We were real close. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, the great thing about uh, intractable problems is that they give diplomats a lot of opportunity to pay their mortgage right. and raise their kids. That's right. Good for the economy. Uh, Atul, again, thank you very much. This was wonderful. We appreciate your time. Wonderful to talk to you. And uh, you look like you're working really hard. I'm glad you wore a tie. Yeah. Wish you a great thank day. You. you too. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at MasonMattSec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and Grant Haver for production assistance. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.